So like we work on all the techniques that allow you to win. And that's why we call it game speed, because we're literally trying to work on all the techniques that allow us to win between that 14 to 18 mile an hour zone of that's what speed you move around on the field. And if you got to turn it to a sprint, boom, hit your max V mechanics and go 19, 20, 21 on the field. Mm. But if not be in this 14 to 18 mile an hour zone and be able to change directions crisply from no matter what foot is in the air, if you're shuffling, if you're wide base, if you're backpedaling, whatever, like learn how to change directions out of all this. That was Tony Villani, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle. And not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. Simplyfaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another podcast, and it's great to have you here. When it comes to speed development, man, we all love speed, but it's interesting to think about uh, the different types of speed that are also required for sport. Obviously, we have to be fast enough if we're interested in team sport performance. We have to be fast enough to be in the game. You can't be a wide receiver in the NFL running 5.1 in the 40. It just isn't going to work. And then uh, whatever gradation or whatever you know variation of that exists for your sport, there is a level of speed that you do need. However, just because you're faster in a straight line, at some point, that isn't going to mean better. And we can see that in, for example, the NFL Combine, where the fastest wide receivers of all time in the 40-yard dash, so straight line speed, have not experienced uh, nearly the level of success of many of their slower counterparts in the actual game. So when it comes to actual game speed, it's helpful to be able to understand the ratio, the balance that exists between that linear straight line track speed development, which I love. We have tons of shows about that. And then also how to balance that out with game speed, understanding change of direction, understanding the needs of offensive players, defensive players, how sports offer different components of what you see in game speed. And for that topic, I'm so excited to have our guest today, Tony Villani. Tony is a sports performance coach, and he's the owner of XPE Sports in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Tony has not only serious linear speed training chops, or you could call canned speed training chops in the NFL Combine results. He's had over 20 number one finishes in the NFL Combine. He also, though, in terms of game speed, is the creator of the Game Speed and Separation Movement Web, 
And Tony has learned from so many of the elite performing athletes that he has worked with over the years. Tony has an understanding in terms of both linear speed and game speed that is really something special. So for the show today, Tony will get into how he ratios and how he proportions both linear speed development and then game speed, change of direction, agility in youth up to elite level athletes. Tony will talk about why he feels the fastest athletes in the history of the combine haven't actually been the best football players. And Tony will talk about the speeds that athletes actually play at for many of these plays in the game and then how he works with the change of direction specific to those game speeds. Tony finally will list key aspects of offensive and defensive agility as well as how agility can differ between sports. So this isn't just a football show. Whatever sport you work with, this show offers a great way to see the relationship between uh, zone-based sports and more pre-planned routes, more offensive schemes, and then the more reactive defensive schemes. This is a podcast that just gives you a higher level of understanding and how change of direction works in sport. And I'll say that regardless of if you're a little bit more of a drill and pre-planned oriented philosophy type coach, or if you're more of a problem-solving constraints-led type coach, The information here is just gold, and you'll have some great ideas regardless of exactly how you're going to implement it. And speaking of implementation as well, sometimes the COD stuff can be a little bit harder to understand via audio only. I know I'm a visual learner, and so if you want more details, uh, Tony was kind enough to give me some of his videos where he very specifically lays out this change of direction training. And so if you want to see or compliment what you're hearing from Tony in audio onto video, Head to JustFlySports.com and check out the show notes associated with this show, and you can check out the videos of Tony demoing COD in action. It's really good stuff. So happy to have him on the show today. I know you guys are going to learn a ton, and I know I did. Let's get on to episode 299 with coach Tony Villani. Tony, I don't know if I knew this before we started talking today, but you know, also based on your uh, headphones and then our conversation, you have, we each have a daughter who's five years old. And I was curious how you know, having a child and, and seeing them go through movement and, and their early sport experiences, uh, what you've learned from that, being someone who's worked with very high-level athletes and elite athletes for your career. Well, I'm probably not as uh, serious as all the other trainers with their kids. I just let my daughter come into our facility and play. So I, I, I'm like one of those sports performance coaches that believes an athlete should play as many sports possible as long as they can. And a kid should be a kid as long as they can. So although I'm the serious dad with our pro athletes, I'm kind of real serious with them once when I know they have a combine invite and have a chance to make the pros. But in high school, I'm trying to convince them just to uh, have fun with sports and trying to get into college if that's their dream. Yes. For me as well, it's like, it's so refreshing to go to that end of things. And to the point where I was just had a youth, five-year-old soccer practice that I was coaching last week. And it's like, and in the coaches clinic, they're like, all right, if you make it a story, if they're like pirates and they're kicking cannonballs and like, this is a, this is amazing. I just had a podcast with Nick Winkleman about coaching language yeah. not too long ago. So I was like, what better ground, you know, to start learning that than five-year-olds where you really can't go wrong. You know, I'm, I feel like I could probably screw it up, you know, with a high level athlete and be like, all right, I'm still learning this, but that age group is just so awesome for imagination and, and using stories too and having as much fun as possible. So I yeah, can agree more it's with fun. you. Definitely fun. So I know one of the things that you do that I'm, I'm very interested in because I think me and you both agree is linear speed training is amazing, but it's, it's so like the most popular episodes of this show are always speed. Like that's what everybody wants, but it's like the game is more than just 
how fast from point A to point B. There's a ton of nuance. And so tell me about, I mean, first off, I know you've gotten amazing combine results. You're really good at teaching and coaching linear speed, but tell me how far that goes. Like what's the balance, linear speed versus game speed? How far, you know, depending on your population, what is your approach to those two linear speed versus agility training? I mean, first of all, I think everyone should get as fast as they humanly possible possibly can get with their own genetics, you know? But then after that, I turn off the speed switch. So what I mean by that is if we're tra- dealing with a combine athlete, we'll get him from a, a power five school normally. He'll normally have good strength and power, hopefully, maybe not be brushed up on running mechanics. And he truly doesn't know how to run out of control, I call it, because they're running from a stand-up position on a football field normally, and they literally cannot run out of control. They always have to be ready to make a play, one. Two, they really don't have a chance to explode and accelerate as rapidly as they can and then open up into track back in mechanics to ever run out of control on the field. So with our combine athletes, it's about teaching them, unfortunately, how to run out of control, how to get in a 40-yard start and explode out and create as much pressure as they can, create a good body lean with power, start opening up their stride, and just run as fast as humanly possible. So what I tell our combine athletes is, look, you don't have gear one explosion because you never get down there. You really don't know how to run with force, which is pushing off the ground because you're normally starting from a stand-up position. You really know how to run in gear three in a controlled state, and you don't have a gear four like truly reaching your max V. So we tell our combine athletes, you have to throw away football and concentrate on nothing but absolute speed every Monday and Thursday. And we do that and we get great results. And it's funny because I caught myself always telling our combine athletes, quit thinking of football, think track and out of control. Okay. And then on our off days, when your legs are sore and we can't run you fast anymore, I'll let you think about football and being in control. And as I started teaching that, I realized we were in great 40-yard dash gains and results, but then those weren't our best football player. And it didn't matter if people came back to us or not. It was just like, if you were fast, but then didn't come back to us and train, and not like we had this magic sauce, they never succeeded in the NFL. And I think they took this track mentality of I've always been faster than everybody else. It's going to work in the NFL. And all the greatest NFL players that I ever worked with started to really convince me that it was nothing about speed. And that's what really shaped my mind is we get you as fast as you humanly can, and then we shut it off. And what I say shut it off is we don't try to improve it anymore. Do we try to maintain it? Yes. But we work so many much more on the other buckets of like agility and other stuff. Another way to look at it is if we get guys, they come in, if they come in and pre-test at 4-5, we're going for 4-3 or 4-2. They come in and pre-test at 4-6, we're going for 4-4 or 4-3. So if we get those guys and in two to three weeks, sorry about that. If we get those guys and in two months, get them down to 4-6-5 to 4-4-1. When I used to tell scouts and people that 10 years ago, they wouldn't believe me. No way you got to run a 441 a 4-6-5. Now I think everybody believes you because it's not that hard to do. You just have to shut down everything else and get them fast. Okay. But once when we do that for six, seven, eight weeks, okay, he goes and does some tryouts and then he comes back to me for another eight weeks. Now everyone will answer me this question for me. I can't then train that guy through another six to eight week blocks 
and get them from 441 to 4418. And then train them again next year and get from 418 to 402. And then try like your speed gains stop. Like that is 100% true. You can't keep improving their speed. Now, if we're a hundred meter runner and after running a hundred meters for 10 straight seconds in a straight line, and we can get that from 991 to 984, seven hundredths of a second by building up their back end maintenance better. And truly that that's a huge difference in that track world. Okay. But it's not a difference in the football world where back end speed maintenance normally doesn't come into effect. So it's kind of like we get them fast and then we shut down speed training. Do we still do some? Of course. We spend about 30% of our time on speed training, but it's not our holy grail anymore. Now, for a younger athlete, I think it's the same. Make sure they can run efficiently. Okay. But they're not going to get faster until they get stronger and more powerful. So make sure everyone can run efficiently and get as fast as they humanly can, but then go work on other things. And maybe just time them. I always tell our kids, we have a group of eighth graders that are in our school, and we tell them, okay, you're running a 5-3 right now. You're a D-tackle. You're 240 pounds, and you're running a 5-3. That's excellent. Do I need to do speed training? Of course we're going to do speed training. All you need to do, though, to be get a D1 scholarship is gain one pound a month and improve one-tenth of a 40 a year. I said, you're probably going to do that just off of getting more physical. So while we're going to stress speed, we're also going to stress overall growth. Now, if we know we got a 40-yard dash coming up, hey, we may shut down all your other training and for four weeks try to get your speed peaked. So you may test a little faster than you normally are on that given day, but then go right back to just being naturally developed. So I think speed has gotten overdone. And I think people are starting to agree with me a little bit because they see how easy it is to improve speed. And then I tell them, okay, so if it's that easy to improve speed, improve it again. Oh, well, it's not going to go down much anymore. Bingo, start working on other stuff then is my thought. Yeah, as you're talking, I think about like the 80-20 principle. And you talk about six to eight weeks, like versus a year. Like you're like, yeah. I'm not, not doing the math out right, but 20%, you know, whatever 20% yeah. of a year is, you're going to get about 80% of the way as far as you could get with that guy based on where exactly. they are. And if it's track season, sure, we're going to spend the whole year, we're going to nuance it all out to really... But is it really worth that extra 80% to try to just top off a little bit? No, like it's not. There's so many more yeah. things that are important. And, you know, even before this conversation, I was telling you a little like, or we started recording, I was t- telling you the anecdote of even just working with five-year-old soccer players. If I just tell them, and it'll, it'll change later, but right now, if I tell them to race, they don't even, they have to look at the other kid. It's all tied to perception. And I just think about mm-hmm. how just intimately tied in perceiving the environment and agility and reacting to the player is just woven into sport. If you're not a track athlete or an individual sport where it's just go, you're forever wired into that. You have to grow with that. And yeah, yeah, if we get too carried away with just one thing, then yeah, we're not helping people as much as we possibly can. That's funny. That analogy works with pro athletes too because we get our combine athletes here and they're like, well, I'm faster on that field when I have to chase something. I'm like, well, unfortunately, that's not what event we're in right now. (laughs) You got to get down alone in your underwear and run fast. You know? (laughs) And it's like, literally, we have to teach our guys how to be track athletes and then work on the other stuff, too. But that's the only time ever in their development with us. Not that we work speed, but we work on absolute acceleration in the max speed. Yeah. I like that you put that it's like that all the way across the board in the sense of youth as well. Just because I think that being more in the private sector, like I'm you know, I was working in university and now I'm really seeing more about what the private sector is all about. And you see 
like parents all the time, right? Like, what's the number one thing so many parents come to the, the sports performance? Oh, my kid's slow. I need my kid to yeah. go fast. Blah, speed. blah, blah. It's speed. But the same at the same time, it's like, I don't think people understand like little, you know, little Timmy. I don't like using genetics as an excuse, but based off your structure and fast twist rate, twitch ratio, there was only so much to expect using that 80-20, spending the, yeah. the 20% of the effort on linear speed. You know, if I spend 20% of my time on that and little Timmy gets X amount faster, great. That's awesome. Like, let's celebrate yep. that, you know, but it's like, that's not enough for a lot of people. They like, they see that gap and they're like, ah, oh, this is just too much, you know, and I, I like zooming out to all the way back for that level. You know what I always tell parents, I guess it's kind of rude, but I always started up with a lot of honesty because I'm sure you get it too. I mean, they walk in with their kid and let's just call it, call it what it is. They, they walk in with their kid. They look like they've been eating McDonald's and they've never played a sport in their life. And they're like, Hey, my kid's eight years old. You you need to get him fast. I'm like, well, what's your goal for him? Well, he needs to go D1. I said, I always ask, what D1 did you play at? You know? You know, if they don't tell me they didn't play D1, I say, all right, now your kid's chances of playing D1 are about cut down 100 and almost 98% because you didn't play D1. I was like, genetics has a role. And it is true, but it's, it is. The parents are out of control and everybody else is. And the same thing with speed and vert. You make my kid jump higher. Okay, can we get him stronger and not get him hurt? You know, because the only time, like, I mean, I agree, even with our combine athletes, we're trying to get a guy's vert, vert from 32 to 37. Okay, that's a great increase, but I mean, it's that much, five inches. When they're, they're all jumping 10 feet in the air, one jumped 10-7, one jumped 10-2. Like, is that one jump going to help them tip a ball once a season? Maybe. Maybe. Well, it's a game of inches. Of course it's a game of inches. Okay, but the only time 37 looked a lot bigger than 33 or 32 is when you write it down on a piece of paper. Okay. Because it's not that, and the only time it's real different, a four six one looks different than a four four seven. There is a difference, but when you write it on a piece of paper, because when you're dealing with a blink of an eye, it's so many other things dictate that blink of an eye than just running in a straight line. And that's what I'm trying to get people to believe. And that's why I'm glad we had great combine results this year, because it proves we do know speed. And I do believe in speed and I'm not saying don't train speed, but I'm saying it has its place when and where. And uh, before our combine results were always looked at like, cause we've always had fast guys, but they're always like, Oh, well, XP always gets the fastest guy. And I'm like, no, we just improve our guys two to three tenths. Like if you open up anybody's combine packet in America, they always say, we improve our guys 0.26 seconds. We improve 0.20 to 0.33. All the marketing looks the same. And I always laugh because I was like, if they truly improved as much as they said, then they'd get the same results as us. Okay. So that's why we don't even put our improvements down. But this year, we literally timed three guys in the four fours, another guy in the four five, two, two more guys in the four fives, and a few guys in the four sixes. And I was like, wow, we are literally going for three guys to run four twos. That's, I've never said that. And they all did it, surprisingly. None of them missed. So I was like, all right, we got three, four, two. So I kind of put out there on social media, like if people wanted to realize what it was like when we get fast guys, this year was it. We got fast guys this year. We had their average improvement and it was the best in combine history. So like getting them fast is one thing, but now all those guys, I don't look at their success in the NFL as going to be any better than anybody else. Like it means absolutely diddly squat. 
it, and it's unfortunate that I say that, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, uh, one thing I said to young kids, I was, I was counseling some high school kids. They were all about 40, 40, 40. I'm like, great. That 40 yard dash is important. I said, so you get into college, you're Alabama, Clemson. How many times do you think they time their 40s again in school? They don't. Six times. Six times. That means one and a half times. Well, maybe once a year, four times. I said, what if it would surprise you that those colleges don't ever time their 40 again? Zero. Same in the NFL. So what does that tell you about that test? Like if it meant something, they time it every year and see if a guy's coming off injury. They don't. They care how you can play. So like everybody says it's a measuring stick just to get in somewhere. They're right. So if it's just a measuring stick, you've got to keep it as just that measuring stick and not make it that everything that's that's done, you know? And uh, that's what I just wanted to be. 40-yard dash is a measuring stick. It's not that hard to fix. We're good at it, so I'm not trying to kill my business when I say that. It's, ne- <laughs> it's never going to go anywhere. It's always going to be there. But it's really just a test of if you train correctly, what's your genetic potential, you know? On one day. Yeah. And that's what it is. Yeah. In some ways, I was going to ask you, like, what, what do you see the, the role, the combine in the grand scheme of things? And you already kind of answered it in one sense, at least in my own head, as I'm asking that question myself. And part of it is, I think as human beings, we just want to see how far we can go. We want to see mm-hmm. how fast, how we want to see how fast we can get. We want to see how yeah. strong we can get within, you know, whatever context we need to be strong. We like seeing these things. And it's always just finding ways to put it back in balance, though, right? Like, it's just, it's just human nature to want to pursue the limits of what we can do a hundred percent and it's all on tv now and it's all a big show and the only thing you see on tv is 40 and positional drills so you think that's all that matters but there's a lot of other things that matter up there that nobody sees but you just don't see it on tv like that so people need to realize it's definitely a tv show everybody that runs fast doesn't get drafted in the first round and then it gets back to quote-unquote playing football you know I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, But I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash just fly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, it is interesting too. I mean, yeah, some of those guys who were the fastest, like, weren't... Just because you ran the fastest times or the, doesn't mean you'll be, like, the NFL superstar down the line. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, they showed some stat where it was, like, every receiver that ran 4-3 or under at Indy, and there was, like, 20 or more of them, whatever, at the time, but only one had had a multiple thousand-yard season. So I'm like, if that doesn't scare you off <laughs> of drafting a fast receiver, I don't know what would. But I started looking into it more, and that's what we can discuss later. Yeah. Is why is that? Why do they test 40 and supposedly put so much stock into it? But why don't those guys perform better? You know, and I have a lot of theories behind that, but 
that's interesting yeah no let's um actually let's dive right into that before i we do actually i had an analogy I, i was thinking about this um even before we talked is i was watching a video not too long ago and it was why like fighter jets in the air force they all used to be like it used to be who can be the fastest for ever since the end of world war ii when like the germans had the first like jet fighter that was faster like faster was better at that point you're faster yeah. you're better and it, they kind of kept going that way until like about the phantom but the f4 phantom was like in the mm-hmm. vietnam war and it was like the fastest and then they started analyzing that phantom and they said well okay well when it actually and it could go like mach 2.2 this is where i'm kind of a nerd like i like just these yeah. stats but like and I also like stories that are not related to, to sport because I think it gives us an interesting perspective. But they, they analyzed the, these fighters and they were like, okay, well, what speed are these actually fighters in dogfights? And it was like Mach 1, Mach 1.2. Like that's the average speed you actually slow down to, to fight. And if you actually go too fast or make the jet too fast, it wastes fuel. And then it's inefficient. And then ever since then, the top speed of a lot of these have actually been getting a little bit slower, like some of the more mod- – they have, but their avionics are better. So it's almost like – in a weird way, it's almost like they researched – well, what speed are you actually interfacing with? And then, you know, the, then let's make the avionics better. Let's make the radar better. Let's make the jamming. Like, it's like, so I think of that in some level, in some way, it's like, you know, that's at least my analogy that I think is interesting is we, we want to pursue these, these pure limits until we realize that maybe that wasn't quite as efficient and we move to some other things. So that being said, and based off of what you were saying before, Tony, about you know your theories on why some of those players who were the, the fastest, the fastest receivers in the combine just didn't mm-hmm. have great careers, uh, what are your, some of your theories on why that actually might have been? I think while they were growing up, they were always winning with speed. And the younger you are, the easier it is to win with speed. Um, but as you get up in levels, the people guarding you, if you're a receiver and you can run a 4 2 four, three, you're being guarded by everyone that runs a four 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 five at slowest. And there's just not a big differentiator of one to two tenths of a second like everybody thinks it is. So if someone has always won with speed and then they get on a field of play where they can't win with speed, they're not equipped to. That's one of my theories. Two, it's like the track mentality is speed, 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 pretty, pretty, pretty. And I love that. But once when you get on a field of play, everything gets thrown off with one step to the side, getting pushed, you know, all that stuff. So again, it's like that straight ahead, just track speed mentality. I don't think equates to it much success on the field. Third reason. So first reason they've always won with speed and don't know how to not win without speed. Second, their speed is totally thrown off on a field of play, like more than other people think. Third is I think increased speed hurts your agility. And a lot of people hate me for saying that, (laughs) but I see it all the time. Like the faster you get, the worse your agility is. Now you can look at God. If you believe in God, like you're blessed with some things, not blessed with another, or you could look, maybe you overdeveloped your speed and didn't spend an adequate time on agility. Or you can look at it as the faster a moving object moves, the harder it is to change directions. That's the theory, like scientifically. So I think too much speed can hurt agility. And I've seen it over and over again. So those are kind of like my three reasons. They're kind of all not, I don't think too controversial. I have a reason why I believe in all of them. And that's why if we have a truly fast guy that comes in, yeah, we try to maximize the speed for the combine. And then we literally shut down his speed training. It sounds awful. Like shut it down. <laughs> but yeah, like Monday, we're going to work on some speed mechanics. Once we get that little form in, we're automatically on the same session working on harnessing speed while we run forward. 
meaning how do we go 45, 90s, 135 angles off of each foot, off of each setup? Like we do that all that on Monday. So it's like half speed, half agility. But then on Tuesday, that same athlete that's already fast can work on nothing but agility. And that's what I call, we always call it at least two ounces of agility for every one ounce of speed. And that's the way we do it is if we focus on speed twice a week, that we still do, we always harness that session at the end with controlling that speed if they're not getting ready for a 40-yard dash. And then on the next day is if they were track, they'd go work tempo runs or whatever. We're like, no, we're working 100% agility that next day. And uh, it's kind of how we do it. Yeah, that sounds like a good ratio. You know, it was going back to the, you know, we had talked earlier in this show about like not spending too much time just just straight up on linear speed in a given year because like 80 20 you do it to get that last little bit would just take up all your time and resources and then you aren't working on all those differentiators for the game and yeah i love what you said too about like the faster athlete could always just use their speed and they didn't have to they weren't forced to use other tools you would see the same thing people say it all the time with athletes who are just bigger than everybody else too the yeah. kid the, the kid who was bigger than all their peers when they were little but then they got to the higher level and now other people are as big as them and they didn't have to use other tools to succeed. That's a gr- great analogy. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I was thinking about like, you know, like the transfer training stuff in, in track. It's kind of like like in the shot put, for example, if you're really strong, that's going to really help you when you're in like the middle level of competition, like the world record mm-hmm. shots, like 75. If you're throwing like 55. Yeah. Like being strong, you got to be strong enough. But once you go from like 60 feet to the world record, that extra bench press didn't help you anymore. Like, you know, exactly. And so I see it kind of like the same thing. Like you, you got to be fast enough, but I, I was going to ask was, I, I love that two for one and I guess, or one for two, like speed and then change yeah. the direction. And how do you deal with situations for, with younger athletes where like, cause you could say this for, okay, I'm, I'm working with, and, and this is a different ball game too, cause strength mm-hmm. is raw strength is easier to build than speed. Like if it was a shot putter, we'd say, oh, well, you need to get stronger. Then that's going to help you right now. What's your mentality for athletes who, I think I already know part of the answer to this, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can only do so much, but like a younger athlete, like 14 years old, not fast as they need to be. Um, And and people are asking you, well, should we do more speed or more linear speed? And I think, again, you already, already kind of touched on it, but could you just kind of go into a little bit more about those questions when people say, well, we're not fast enough where we need to be and should we work on this yeah. more now or things like that? I think pre-puberty athletes, so that'll lead into my question of a 14-year-old, is I think all they have to do uh, like, is work on track mechanics, forming that circle. Because they don't have the – I see too many people working on like acceleration drills with like young kids. And I'm like, that's great, but you need force to accelerate. And force application really isn't going to come in until you can really go through strength and power training. Mm-hmm. So while you can teach a kid how to be low – when he's pre-puberty, I think the best way to work acceleration with pre-puberty athletes is push-up starts because yeah. it takes them out of the power position and they pop up and they're low and they got to use their circle to kind of come up underneath them. So it kind of teaches them form to accelerate. And then I just want them to have a beautiful circle like they're riding a bike. So start teaching them track mechanics. But once when they hit puberty, we start taking out the and say, all right, you got that push-up start for acceleration and you already hopefully built your max V mechanics of that beautiful circle, right? But now let's add strength to power into that 
push up start progression into that. And at 12 to four, and 14 years old, it should be old enough to really start looking at weight training and strength to power gains to enhance their speed. And if they've already got the form, I'm sure you can always tweak it a little bit. But the form is, you know, creating circles that get bigger and bigger and creating the right impact. Now, hamstrings and hip flexors and glute activations, all that get better, great. You know, but that just comes with repeating it, I think, unless they're a track athlete and you're trying to totally perfect it. So I go back to old school strength and conditioning training that people don't believe me. No, I just want to improve that 14 to 18 year old strength to power. And every year he can genetically get better at that. And that increase in strength to power is going to then turn into a better genetic athlete and increase his speed. And it's kind of like there is a finite strength to power gain or there's a finite strength gain that goes to speed. You know, like you don't have to be super strong to keep increasing your speed. But I don't think they've ever said increase in power is going to be a bad thing for speed. You know, so I think you should always focus on power, reflexive index, impact off the ground, all that stuff. Once when you're strong enough to help speed. But then a kid is going to keep getting faster and faster and faster just by growing. So it's kind of like I wouldn't overdo the speed gains. I would just try to monitor his speed spike if he has a 40-yard dash coming up in front of coaches, you know? And for those four weeks, I would try to do less and make sure he's running one to one and a half tenths faster than he can run if he's fresh and timing that up and then go back to regular training. Yeah. I like what you said too about like the, the push-up starts or just the get-up starts. I'm always having worked with youth track too. Like, I mean, a, a 11-year-old in the blocks is not <laughs> If you even just try to coach them, it's a mess. Like their strength isn't great. And finding ways where they can just self-organize, where they can be a kid and, and figure it out. I, I love that stuff. So just, I mean, yeah, if like, play every sport, be a kid, have fun with it as long as you want, like as long as you can, because if you do make the division one route of your sport, it's going to be a grind. Like why grind a kid to death until he's 17 or 18 to prepare him for that? He will be burnt out by the time mm-hmm. he gets to power five. If that's your goal as a parent, you know, and I'm sure you see it all the time too. let the kids be kids. It's like, I believe in it so much. I, I, I tell so many parents of kids that bring them to me because they think, Oh, you're this pro level trainer. You're going to hammer it home to my kid. And I'm like, no, I want to tell him to go have fun with his friends, make sure he has good grades at school and he has fun playing his sport. Those are my three goals. Oh, and then he wants to come in here twice a week and work speed and agility mechanics great you know so let i just think let the kids be kids and let them grow into their genetic potential but you can't can alter that genetic potential but you ain't you're not changing it yeah one of the things that it's just i mean it's so it's an endemic in our modern society is just is it's escalation it's more it's always easy to put more on a kid's plate but then that will inevitably so often blow up later some point down the line injury burnout and I think that so much of coaching is presented as something else to do when I think a lot of times it's it's either what not to do or when to just let someone play or explore or have fun. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love seeing so many of the great now respected coaches out there 
promoting that less is more, you know, more of something that makes you worse is not better. So I'm glad great coaches are all normally now speaking the same language. And I'm not saying don't ever condition your football team to see who's going to toughen up a little bit. But if that's your whole goal every day, I think you've got the wrong mentality. That's just me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I know a lot of people, including myself, that would definitely agree with that. You know, one thing you said that was interesting, Tony, that I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about it. Someone put this stat out for the combine this year, and it was something, or maybe the last three years, you would know way more about this than me because I just, Mm -hmm. sometimes there's more behind stats than what you see, but it was like, it was showing the 40 yard dash times. And I think they've gotten maybe a little better in the last years, but the Mm -hmm. cone, the three cone, like the pro agility had gotten worse. And I was wondering if you thought there might be any link there, just from a pure mechanical perspective, maybe more emphasis on, and I mean the three, you know, the three cone or whatever, it's, that's not, you're not perceiving opponents. You're just running and changing directions. But do you feel like there's anything like with, as per what you just said with, those I mean, one getting better and one getting worse or, or that's just happenstance well, one what i already touched on is like increased speed makes those agility scores worse and people argue with that with me but i, I just challenge them to come watch us prepare 30 guys for the combine every year and you'll see our fastest guys require the most prep work on the three cone and shuttle hmm. and it's always like we're, we're going to get one of our slow guys and say watch how he does this shuttle in three tone he's slower than you and he gets a much better score than you. So what does that tell you? They look at you and they're lost. That tells you your speed doesn't do anything for you in this test. So we have to tell those fast guys, quit running on these tests. Move and set your proper change of direction angles on this test. That's what the whole test is about. How do you change directions? So I think increased speed truly hampers those agility scores. That's one. And I'll get back to that. But two is they're starting to do the NFL combine at night and needing everything on TV. And the shuttle and three cones are an afterthought. And they're now done at 10 p.m. at night. And they're just rushing the guys through it. And so that, that's a problem, too. So it could be a little bit of both. But what people don't understand about those tests is if I take two athletes and I time their 40 three times on one day with adequate rest, they're going to be close to the same every time, especially if you do it without human error. But like, depending on how you catch the start, they're all going to be close to the same. What I mean by that, he's going to go run a four six three, and then he'll run a four five eight, and then he's going to run a four six four. Okay, he ran three tests; they're all within six hundredths of each other. Do that for another athlete: four four one. Okay, four four five. Okay, four three nine. Okay, they're all within six hundredths of each other. That same athlete, that same day, when you run them in a straight line for uninterrupted four to five seconds. There's not much variance in that test score. Now, if you time that same athlete four weeks later, he has a good or bad day, it can jump around a 10th. Okay. But that same day, it'll jump around a 10th and then his variance will still be around that same time. Okay. But if you test that same athlete's agility for three different reps, he can hit a six, eight, three cone, a seven, one, three cone and a six, nine, two, three cone. Because it's the three cones. You got one change of direction, another change of direction, one plant, one spin, one round of turn. There is one, two, three, four, four to five different point of attacks there that truly dictate that time. So on the 40 yard start, we know our guys are going to run from five to 40, almost the same. It just dictates how do they start, which dictates their three to five hundreds hit or miss. Okay. 
But on that shuttle or three cone, you have five point of attack. They all, when you hit them right, it's your best time. But when you do one of those point of attack wrongs, it's a tenth to a tenth and a half slower. So now that's why the variance of those times are so big. And the shuttle is easier. You got one point of attack, one point of attack. So we'll literally time a shuttle and I'll be like, all right, you're a DB. I don't care what your 40 yard dash speed is. When you do this test well, it should be 4.0 to 4.1. When you look average, it should be 4.2. If you miss any of these cuts, it's going to be 4.3 or 4.4. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, go ahead and go. And you go, oop, oh, good turn. Oh, man, you popped up. Probably going to be a tenth and a half slow. Probably not 4.15. You'll be 4.30. You look at your watch, 4.33. And the guys can't believe you're just totally watching them do the drill and you're guessing what they're going to run. And my eyes have learned to see how they change directions. And if they change directions good, you know it's a great time in a range, regardless of what their speed is. If they change directions poorly, it's a bad time. And so I start telling them, imagine on your 40-yard start, if you started, and instead of exploding out, you switched your stance and popped up. You'd run like three to four tenths worse. Well, now imagine going into that cut, and instead of loading and coming out, you hit and pop up. Well, that's like three-tenths difference. So those tests have just such a big variance in them on a given day for the same athlete. You have to hit them perfect to get your best score. And if your speed is good, you're at a hindrance. And if they're rushing you through it and you're doing it at 10 p.m. at night, it's you're at a hindrance. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I yeah with doing the the agility like later at night, that makes sense too. I, I'm always looking for all the reasons, but. You know, as you were saying that all too, I was thinking to myself, like I was always way better at change of direction than I was at like linear speed, even though I'm a track mm-hmm. guy, like I, mm-hmm. I was more of a jumper and <laughs> through javelin, like some of the slower speed stuff relative to sprinting or, or ran hurdles. But like, I don't know, it, there is a, there's a maximal controllable, it's all about controllable velocity in those change yeah. of direction movements. And maybe like, maybe like what you're saying too, a little bit, maybe if you're, if you're running almost out of control, like you mentioned earlier, you know, the ability to run fast, the ability to run out of control versus in control. Yeah. It's just, it's just all interesting to me. I do. I actually want to ask you, so based off of getting into game speed and like with the three cone or the shuttle, tell me a little bit about your approach to game speed. And I'll preface this with saying that a big direction that I've gone in, in learning and thinking about it is definitely like the perception based so so like small set of games setting up small set of games to force reactions and and looking at like maybe an athlete might change a direction change direction a differently based off the situation i'm curious how well one like like how much do you feel like the the agility transfers to pro performance like just the the tests and then if not where do you fill in more gaps um from either a technique or a like perceiving perspective part of that combine shuttle is just setting up a wide base crossover. So we call doing that like a inside linebacker, a baseball steal. I mean, that's a wide base crossover. And that's one piece of agility, but it's planned and you know how to set it up. So you can also do that same cut if your feet get tight and you got a jab out, you don't set a wide base. And you can also do that same cut when you miss any anticipation and you spin around the cone in place. Now, if you spin around in place, that's the worst time, right? If you overrun that inside edge and plant here, now you got to jab back to that inside edge. That's a better time than spinning in place, but it's the worst time. 
Or if you break and sit on that inside edge and keep your inside and you cross over, that's the best way to get a combine shuttle. So I started looking at different ways people practice change of direction and saying, for the shuttle and three cone, we got to do it the perfect way. Okay. And it's planned steps. But out on the field, we don't know when those planned steps have to change. We got to learn three to four different ways to do the same angle. And where I really approached my thoughts is Anquan Bolden and Darrell Rivas blew my mind four years ago. And I credit almost them to my whole game speed and separation web. I finally got to train Revis for one offseason, just trying to get his last year in. And he just worked out with the group, 20 athletes. And I kept correcting him. And I was like, S-H-I-T, I'm correcting Revis, you know. But I'm correcting him stuff I know is right. But I'm not correcting this guy that's worse than him because he's doing it right. But I keep correcting Revis. And I think Revis is thinking I'm singling him out in a group of my athletes because this is his first year with us. Saying, oh, Revis doesn't know how to do it like us. And I, I, had, I told Anquan Bolden, Mark Ingram, and this, this uh, DB Marcus Gilchrist who played with me, I said, go talk to him. I'm not singling him out, but he is doing it wrong. And Revis came up to me after they talked to me and said, no, nah, I am doing that wrong. Like, I totally get what you're saying. So keep correcting me. And I'm like, wow. Like, Revis going into year 12 or 13 wants to be corrected. And it gave me some confidence. So I was like, okay, so now let me pick your brain. I'm teaching it like this, and I'll get into that because I want this. He's like, yeah, I call that playing basketball. I was like, okay, got it. Play basketball, you're in a wide base, you're shuffling. Okay, so I, and I was like, I assume when you're playing zone and man-to-man, you want to play basketball as long as you can. Exactly. He goes, but even in man-to-man, I want to play basketball. You know, And then we started to talk about anticipating cuts or reacting to cuts. And I started coming up with this whole system of a receiver knows where he's going. And it's not just an NFL receiver. It's anybody who's attacking on the lacrosse or soccer field kind of trying to plan a setup for where they want to go. So when a receiver runs a post, he's got to have that defensive back think he's not running to the post because that quarterback's throwing to the post. So everybody's like, the receiver has it easy. He knows where he's going. No, you idiots. He He has to go there. He can't make up his mind to go around and go somewhere else. He's got to be up at the same spot. The receiver actually has it hard. So why doesn't every offensive player from soccer who's got to get to that goal, lacrosse got to get to that goal, basketball players got to get to that goal. That doesn't change. So learn from a receiver who's the best. That's his only job. So let's learn from a receiver how to what we do, planned attack running forward. It's planned. It's predetermined where I have to go, but I can't let you know it and I have to fool you. Okay, now the defensive player, totally different. Well, shoot, I got to react to where I got to go out of a back pedal, sometimes out of trail position running, sometimes out of a crossover run, sometimes out of a shuffle. So the defensive player's agility increases by eight. He's got to do it from different directions. So the receiver's agility goes into I'm planned running, but I'm not running. Okay, and I'm setting up my change of direction. The defense is like, I, I may be in trail position, so I got to practice it like a receiver. Yeah. But the receiver is always going to do it right. So you have to practice to do it like a receiver. That's called jumping the route. You got to practice that receiver got you off position. Now there's two different cuts that can happen. You either spin in place or you're playing outside. In your t- so the, re- the receiver is going to practice it perfect every time. The only difference for the receiver is how much speed he carries in and out, what illusion he gives before that perfect cut happens. 
the defensive players got to practice that same perfect cut probably three or four different ways, just one direction, because they're all going to happen. Okay. And I really envisioned this whole process when I got Darrell Rivas to get picked up until week eight, I think, of the Chiefs that year. And Anquan Bolden had just retired. And it was just me, Darrell Rivas, and Anquan Bolden in our facility in the fall. Like, normally I have off, and I'm like, I got to keep training Rebus. That kind of stinks, but that's awesome. So then I started picking Anquan Bolden and Rebus's brain when I had him alone. And they said something that reshaped my thinking five years ago. I said, Anquan, what are you trying to do to Rebus in this situation? He said, make him run. I said, Rebus, what are you trying to do to Anquan? He goes, make him run. I said, what do you guys mean? He goes, whoever runs loses. Because once when Anquan Bolden has to run fast to threaten Revis, he, he told me, I throw away all my change of direction capabilities. I'm like, you're right. You're right. And if Revis has to run or get out of position and try to play catch up to Anquan Bolden, now Anquan Bolden's got him right where he wants. Because now he's moving too And then Anquan Bolden can then change the direction. I'm like, that's crazy. So then we started working on releases. And a wide receiver release like a DB is very similar to a, a DN versus O tackle. It's very simple to a basketball player trying to get to a goal. See all these dance and releases where you try to beat the guy at the line? It's garbage. It's garbage. Because the more I beat him off the line, if I'm a receiver, just in this position, now if I beat him too bad, good, I've only got one route I can run, and that's the go ball. That's it. And if Revis is sitting behind me and it's not a goal ball, anytime I want to come back or bend, Revis is set up to have longer to change directions or be more inside of me. So even off the line, beating them with speed isn't what you want. You actually just want to get by them and have them close to you, a lot of big-bodied receivers. Because when they're close to you, you know what happens? You get separation if they're close to you. But if they're off of you, it gives Revis more time to read when he's got to change directions. So it's like all it's like jujitsu. It's all a game of space and not space and who's controlling the space. I call it on the field when a point of attack happens. Same in jujitsu and boxing. It's who wants the space, who doesn't want the space. And when a point of attack happens, who was controlling that space? And that's what the game of football. I'm trying to take the soccer, basketball, lacrosse is all about. Like, don't look at it as football. Look at it as a receiver knows how to set up planned attack the best in the world because that's all he does. A defense, a defensive bat knows how to play defense better than anybody in the world because that's all he does. So you go to basketball and lacrosse, you got to play both. I say learn the best from the best in the world, both. So learn defense from a defensive bat, learn it in tightest spacers from a linebacker, and learn how to fight from offensive and defense alignment and boxers and wrestlers because all the footwork is the same, jab, like all the footwork is the same. All these mechanics are the same. When I watch great stand-up coaches coach our UFC fighters, wrestling coaches being wide bases, I watch how it translates to an offensive lineman. An offensive lineman is a defensive back, but in a wider base. What do you mean? They're in a wider base because they have to be more powerful and don't have to turn to run. A defensive back is an offensive lineman that has to be able to turn to run once when they get by him. The offensive lineman doesn't have to turn to run, so they're in a wider base. It's the same as every sport. Basketball, they don't have to turn to run as much as you think. They don't. They cross over and take a couple steps of speed, and they're back in their basketball base. So that's why basketball, I like argue, 
there's one basketball agility guy on Twitter all the time. And I understand what he's saying for basketball, but a DB doesn't set up in this wide base, like a basketball player, their shuffles different. Okay. A DB sets up in a tight base and jab and recovers the shuffle, or he sets up in a wide base when he wants to fight and keep them in front of him. Basketball is always in a wide base because they don't have to turn and sprint. A DB has to be able to turn and sprint on a field. So even the agilities are, are similar if you know what you're looking for. So it just, those two really opened up my mind of, I'm just trying to play a game of one step of separation on every drill we do. And if we can create one step of separation, one step, that's all we need to win on the football field. Okay. And speed can get that one step. A 4-4 can get that one step on a 4-6 after four seconds of running in a straight line. Okay? Takes that long because they both go 14, 16, 18, 19 miles an hour, 20, and then the 4-2 to 4-3 is getting to 24 miles an hour. This guy's at 22, and there's a separation. It starts to happen 20 to 25 yards downfield. But you have so many different ways to get an immediate step of separation on your opponent from correct agility mechanics. So I'm always like, train speed because if you're fast and you get a step, you never get caught. But if you're slow and you get that step, you get caught 25 to 30 yards later. It's still a big play. And you know what? If you're slow and you get that step on a lacrosse field, now this person who's faster has got to chase. You know all you do is change directions again and you get that other step. Like you you play yo-yo with a fast guy. I call it playing yo-yo. <laughs> like let them catch you, change directions again. There goes their separate separation. And that's why those great players in the NFL have told me, I am not running. Teach me how to not run on that football field. I want to move. I want to look like I'm running, but I'm not running. And then once when I get everybody behind me, I'll turn to a sprinter. But as long as there's someone in front of me, I got to do a move on. I'm not sprinting. And it just it's a weird concept, but who knows? We'll see if people like it. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I mean, I was um, I was a basketball player in high school, but not. I didn't. My high school actually didn't have football. I just all I have is my uh, just two hand tag football days, really, with that. But it, you know, in listening to you talk, it's it's very interesting. My mind always wants to. I guess on some level, I like thinking of. I know, or I know that when you get into the specific sport, that an immense level of nuance is required and it's so cool how you have these elite athletes to learn from i've i've learned from so many athletes that i've worked with and and i think it's sometimes it's hard it can be intimidating for a lot of coaches to get down that path of nuance for me i guess in in the sense of keeping this podcast a little more general i'm super interested in in all of it but i you know you're talking about different sports and i think about it is really interesting like you said that football player was playing football like a basketball player and it it is interesting to me because I always feel like, well, don't you want to do like a lot of sports right early, uh, which we all would agree with. You play a lot of sports mm-hmm. early and then you start to eventually specialize at some point. And it's interesting to me how you could go to football. Like, why are you still playing like a basketball player if you're in football now? I, I think that's just an interesting note because it's almost like that's where. So that's the space that you're really working in almost is that where did you make that transition where you should between different kind of sports skills or different just general bigger movement strategies yeah um i just think like when when a top db says i want to play basketball as long as i can just take it back to i want to be in a a defensive base as long as i can and not sprint you know i want to sprint 
last case scenario. Mm. And then you start talking about game speed. If you look at the best DBs and safeties in the NFL and truly pull up their game speed footage, they're only running over 16 miles an hour when they're in trouble, Hmm. which totally eliminates the whole max V fit like argument. Like you do still train it. I agree. But, you know, in the receivers, I always tell people like receivers, Anton Bowen always tells them receivers runs routes between about 14, 15 miles an hour. I'm like, it can't be that slow, Anton. And then someone posted a video of Julio Jones. He ran a post corner route for a 35 yard touchdown catch. Ran right at the DB, went towards the post, changed directions, went towards the post corner, cut the ball, 28 yard touchdown. DB fell on his face. He was just wide open. And I asked people, Julio Jones is an avatar freak. I don't train him. What do you think Julio Jones' max speed was of that route? 18, 19, 20 miles an hour, no, 13 miles an hour. He ran for 15 yards and he reached his max speed of 13 miles an hour. He can go 16. He can go 17. He went 13. Why? Because that DB was camped out right at that spot and Julio Jones had to be in control to hit a good change of direction and fake him out. Speed had nothing to do with that. The illusion of speed did, but speed Hmm. had nothing to do with it. Now that defense of player was trying to play basketball there. And when he went for Julio Jones's post, he turned into a sprinter. And right when he turned into a sprinter and tried to chase him, Julio Jones went boop and went to the corner and the DB buckled and fell down. He didn't stay in his basketball base. Now it's all hard because everybody's good out there. But that's what they mean is who's, who's controlling the space and controlling their own movement and who's in control and who's out of control. And that's like that for every mm-hmm. single sport. I always use Luka Doncic right now. Like, he's not fast and most <laughs> unathletic guy maybe on that court. Yeah. But he gets to the hoop at will by just not going around people, just kind of going through them, just getting you to lean one way and going on the other side. LeBron's great at it now and a physical freak. But, like, those are like the, the best basketball players, the same thing, aren't the ones doing these and one videos. You know, that – that all of that dance and stuff doesn't work. Just like the releases, that, that, none of that works. Like it looks cool, but if you watch people, the ones that just attack at all times are the ones that have the longest and most productive careers, you know? And it's just kind of like, it's point of, I call it point of attack agility, like plan, like everything is in, in your control, even in defense, if you're controlling, you're winning in offense, if you're controlling, you're winning. So like we work on all the techniques that allow you to win. And that's why we call it game speed because we're literally trying to work on all the techniques that allow us to win between that 14 to 18 mile an hour zone of that's what speed you move around on the field. And if you got to turn it to a sprint, boom, hit your max V mechanics and go 19, 20, 21 on the field. Mm. But if not be in this 14 to 18 mile an hour zone and be able to change directions crisply from no matter what foot is in the air, if you're shuffling, if you're wide base, if you're backpedaling, whatever, like learn how to change directions out of all. Yeah. And there's different ways to change directions. It's not running around cones. I had an epiphany the other day. It's like when you're shuffling, what's your speed? I don't know, three to four miles an hour. Okay. So is there any breakdown needed to change directions when you're only moving three or four miles an hour? No, you shuffle. So all it is is, Where's your head and when do you read? And if my head's over here, 
okay, and my foot's wide, then what I have to do is push off this foot, drop into my inside foot and go down, right? Push drop, right? And try not to push spin because now I'm going to lose space. So if I'm over here, I push, I have to drop it quick and crawl, right? What about if I'm in the same position, but my eyes cut on and I lean this way? Oh, great. Now I'm on my inside edge. Now I'm not on my outside edge. Feet are the same, but my weight's on my inside edge. Now, you know what I can do? I just immediately cross. Okay. And that's all it is, is are you on your outside edge or your inside edge when you decide to change directions moving laterally? And it's just set it and go. There's no breakdown because you're only going three or four miles an hour, we hope. But now when you bat pedal, okay, now you're bat pedaling. Well, guys are probably bat pedaling eight to 10 miles an hour. Okay. So they're told to kick grass. Why are they told to kick grass? Keep your feet on the ground. Don't lift them up. Don't go to like back end speed mechanics in a back pedal because you can't change directions. So kick the grass. Now you're going eight to 10 miles an hour. So they call it stick replace. What foot's in there? Okay. This one's in there. I got to go that way. Pop, pop, boom. Good. This foot's in there. I got to go that way. Pop, pop, boom. They call that stick replace. Well, it takes two steps because you have to stop, replace, and go. Now you're going eight to 10 miles an hour. Well, what happens if you're running forward and you're going to 14 to 16 miles an hour? Well, now I'm running forward. I can't stick replace. I can't stop. So I got to decelerate, break plant, and come out of it. It takes three steps to get out. So a lot of those change of directions are dictated in what position you're in or even not even position, what multi-directional run you're doing and what speed you're carrying. And that's what we've really broken down. So instead of just running around cones for position work, it's like my athletes say, how do you want me to run around that cone? Mm. You want me to carry speed and try to react to it? You want me to set it up and sit tight to it? You want me to give them a move and then sit wide and cross? Like, what do you want me to do before I get to that cone? Where everybody else is just running to the cone and changing directions. We change directions six to eight different ways, the same direction in mm. a session. And once when you learn that, you start to learn like how many different ways there are to improve agility to get one step versus how easy it is to increase speed. And you find yourself doing so much more agility training with your athletes than you ever thought. Yeah, I think with the, I think with agility, the big thing is, I, I think we're oftentimes afraid of what we don't know. We feel like, and even for me, I, like you mentioned six to eight ways to change direction. I don't know six to eight ways. I don't get into to football on that level or even, even field sports in general on that. Like I could oh, hold on. Let you. me explain how easy it is. Cause Brendan Thompson said the same thing. And Brendan Thompson is an amazing track guy, but this is how easy it is. I mean, it's not hard. If I'm running and got a cut to the left, right. And this foot's in the air and it's set up. The best way to do is round a 90. If I'm going 90 degrees. So I go one, two, three, I'm at nine. Yeah. Can you, uh, for, uh, which foot, um, actually this helps cause I actually have my questions up so I don't see you. So as if someone's listening and they don't see you, uh, could you just okay. describe what leg and then how that, yeah. Cause that'll help me yeah. too. So, so if I'm running in a straight line and my right foot's in the air and I want to turn to the left, then I'm going to plan on my right outside foot, get to about 45 degrees on my left foot, lead that foot, bend over it, get to my other outside foot and finish the 90 degree turn. So it goes outside, inside, outside. Right. And I, I roll through that 90 degrees. Like I pick up speed through it. That's how a receiver does a speed out or a deep dig. Like they don't break down to it. They run out of it. That's the best way to get to 90 degrees. Okay. But now an offense is always going to go outside, inside, outside because it's planned. They actually know exactly how many steps to their speed out or dig. Okay. A defensive player though, on any sport, 
may not have their outside foot in the air when they their brain cuts on and they got to go to 90, right? Their inside foot may be in the air. So they got to learn how to go inside, outside, inside to get to 90. Because if you only practice it off your outside foot and your left and your inside foot's in the air and you got to go, what do you want to do? Take a step and then another step? It's too late. Mm. And we have plenty of plays where we see DBs spin on their inside foot to turn and they go make a play because they didn't wait for their outside foot to come down. So like you can, we call that roll a 90, but you can start it on your outside foot or inside foot. Receiver's always going to go outside. Anybody else is going to go outside first or inside. But now what happens if you run up there and you want to make a sharp 90? Well, you can't make a sharp 90 and roll out of it. Then you've got to decelerate, break plant, and go to 90 in a tight angle. So now you got to put more brakes on, not roll, break plant into it and go to 90 degrees sharp. So now it's like break on your inside, plant on your outside, separate over back over your inside, break plant jab step, right? Well, what happens if you run up there and you start coming to a defensive base or you're a slot receiver, you run up there and you form the basketball base. How are you going to get 90? Now you got to perform a wide base crossover. So you run up, set, crossover. Okay. So we just did five different ways or four different ways to go that way. And all those ways work. But what happens when it doesn't work? Well, you run up, you have none of that anticipation, react, you have no setup. Now you just got to stick replace. And sometimes you spin in place and you get behind, but you better do it quick and efficiently because you got out of position because you got caught running into that cut when somebody else didn't. Now you spin in place. That's what everybody practices on Instagram. We call it fast eat your place and it looks super quick, but you actually stayed in place when you changed direction. So just to go to that 190 degrees, you got about six or seven different ways to practice. And now you got to do it the other 90 degrees. So you got 15 reps to just work on the 90 degree cut, you know, and that's why our agility training can get to be so much better than it is out there. And people are like, well, it's too complicated. I'm like, I agree. But people used to think training speed was hard too, 10 to 12 years ago. Now we found out it's not, you know, and I'm not trying to say this is the next thing that everybody needs to learn because everybody knows speed now. I kind of am because I'm like, this is what the best athletes in the world have taught me. And it's, it's simple drills. When you look at them, you're like, oh, that's simple. Yeah, I can see why that works. Okay, now try to get your athlete to do it. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't do it. I can't do this. Like, I literally can't plan off my outside foot when I, when I know it's coming. Yeah, we got to work on that. One coach told me it was great. I don't have the big words that he used, but it's like the first thing of learning is, Know you're doing it wrong and you can't fix it. Like that's the first part of learning. That's like level one, right? And then level two is know you're doing it wrong, but you can fix it, right? And then level three is I'm not doing it wrong anymore, but I still have to try to fix it, right? And then level four is I don't even have to try anymore and I'm doing it right. You know, and it's like the whole conscious and unconscious Mm -hmm. what you're trying. And guys that get it in muscle memory, can't even feel the wrong way anymore, but don't even have to try to do it right. You know, and Travis Kelsey told me something great. He's like, Tony, I like it when you show me how to do it wrong because I feel I do that sometime and then show me how to do it right. So I feel the difference and then I can perfect doing it right. And then it gets in his muscle memory. Now I don't have to try to do it right. It just happens. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you feel... I, and again, football being the, the sport that I am less familiar with, it seems, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it 
seems that based off the offense and defensive components, and like you said, like basketball, you play both, soccer, you play both, lacrosse, you play both, football, you, at some level, you're just going to be playing one. Do you think that football, maybe I'll phrase it this way. I mean, my mentality, as I've learned from different people, just from agility, just a very general term. Like, let's just say we're all, we just rolled out a soccer ball in the front yard and we're just playing, you know, we're doing offense, defense, different things. I, my knowledge would go very generally towards, you know, just the perception and reaction, manipulating the space, like that being the most important way to trade that agility. When I hear you talk about football, I'm like, wow, there are, there is a lot of pre-planned stuff here. The way, like you said, receivers, you have to commit to a route and just get the person to think you're going the other way. Yeah. But there's not necessarily as much, especially like like take three on three basketball, tons of creativity. There's not really play, you yeah. know. And so how do you view like just a more like let it flow, perception, reaction, soccer, small set of games, like that kind of mentality versus how does that, do you feel like that changes a lot once you get into football where there is a lot more pre-planned stuff going on? Or do you think that it could be? Yeah, no, the, the great way I explain it to my football players is we don't dance, we don't juke. <laughs> We don't like that's what I've learned from the best guys. Like if if we're juking, we do it in as few steps possible and, and get upfield. Like guys are too good, you know. We don't dance, we don't juke. We win at the point of attack. And my guys understand. I'm like, when is the most important change of direction happen? And they're like, the first one. Hmm. You know, the first one. You only you, on that field. You only get one chance to make a decision. To sometimes sprint to run. You know, and if you make two decisions to change directions, you're normally toast. You know, even as an offensive player. Like sometimes they'll do two jukes, but normally they just want to set up and go. So like we always say first times, best time and only times, you know? And so it's like with football, we practice one change of direction per rep. Basketball, soccer, all those other sports, we do like multiple patterns and like three or four change of directions in one thing, if that makes in one drill, if that makes sense. Because on those sports, it's a lot more like movement into like multiple change of directions. Mm-hmm. Now, we still want them to be perfect every time they change directions. But sometimes we'll say, hey, like we have like a great group of lacrosse girls we train. And I'm like, hey, dance, dance, set it, good. Boom, dance, dance, set it, boom, good. Okay, bat pal, dance, dance, set it, good. Okay, now here comes a perfect one when you go to a sprint, boom, and attack. And we want that fourth one to look like just crisp and amazing going to speed. So we try to teach our like lacrosse players and soccer players, hey, we're going to do some of these agility moves. But by the fifth one, you got to turn it to speed and look different. You know, because you want that person that's guarding you kind of get lazy. Oh, this looks the same. This Oh, shoot. There they went. You know, and that comes from multiple agilities in the same pattern. On a football field, you don't have that option because even people think they do. Man, that quarterback is not waiting for a receiver to sit there and dance in his route. Like <laughs> yeah. a good quarterback, that guy's dancing. I'm looking over here. Like I'm Tom Brown. I'm not going to get hit waiting for this guy to get open. Like. And like, so football is totally different. It's like win at one point of attack agility and you're going to win 95% of the time on the football linebacker. Same way. Like I drift over here. Oh, I go, I drift over here. Oh, I change directions and go this way. Well, I drift over here. I change directions here. I change You change directions twice as a linebacker that play you're done, you know? So it's kind of like football is like, we really work on really, really agility at point of attack and making it perfect one rep, but other sports, we, we do do like, like more, not dancing, but more agility drill on the top of agility drill on top of agility drill before we turn to speed. Gotcha. I'm trying to think about how that would, um, I'm just kind of trying to think about the differences between those in my head. This is really useful for me because I, I just feel like coaches, the more 
especially in sports performance, like where it encompasses a lot of things, a lot of sports, like the more you can understand about different sports needs. I just think that helps us to, like you said, like when you first get into speed training, you think it's really complicated. And then after a while, like, you know, this really isn't that complicated. (laughs) And uh, I think exactly the, the more sports you intuitively know the differences like because honestly i hadn't really thought about that i come from like a basketball background where it's all just creative a lot of it's just very creative you're dancing more and i am not as used to more the the pre-route planned like it's it's one point of attack type thing right like i'm not as used to that and it does make sense that there's a different kind of brand of of how you go about looking crazy is like anquan bolden like he'll tell you even in the nfl a lot of receiver coaches don't Teach. He had one great receiver coach, he thinks, in the NFL. That's awful. In the NFL, he literally had one great receiver coach. And honestly, I've talked about six NFL wide receivers that are like have more catches in the NFL, hit like top 15. And like three of them, four of them, named the same receiver coach. And he's like, he taught us every step is planned, and we know exactly where we're going. So Anquan would walk routes in the hall. And like everybody should know, but if you don't, a slant is one, two, three, go to slant. A speed out is one, two, three, four, go to speed out. Okay. But so a receiver knows that three slant, four speed out. How many steps is my dig? How many steps do I go before I break down to go to my combat? Like that's how precise a receiver has to be. And even in the high school level, we challenge them. We're like, I know, you know, three steps to a slant, four steps to a speed out, but why don't you know how many steps to the other route? Because if you and your quarterback in high school can learn that, you're way ahead of the game. But they should know that if they if they go out there and practice. But now it's like other positions got to go different. One, two, three, go this way. One, two, three, go this way. Four, like other positions that want to play an attack got to not have just those steps. They got to take that from the receiver and, and plan it all over the place. <laughs> and it intimidates some people because it's so much to learn. But once when you learn it, it becomes so simple. Like, it's weird. It's all overlapping. Every sport, every position, you start to look at stuff all the time. Like, like there's not a different sport between jujitsu people rolling around on the ground and a wide receiver versus a defensive back. But it's the same. It's who's controlling space, who has it because they want it, or who's closing it because they don't want it. And what's amazing is sometimes the receiver does not want space. You're like, what do you mean? They don't want space. They want that DB on him because it's easier for them to separate. And it's like weird. And once when you start, like I just picked football players' brains, and when I've taken it to some top basketball players, they love it. Because, like, I've taken some top basketball players, and I'm like, we're not learning how to run on that court. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, you're going to push three or four steps. That's all you got. I was like, because if you push five, six, seven steps, you're going to be 60 feet down the court by the time you can set up something. And that's all you need. And you understand that from track. If you truly teach someone how to push off that ground three to four steps and go three to four steps to speed, they're literally seven to eight steps of running fast. They're 15 yards in that, in that time frame almost, right? So 15 yards is 45 feet. That's Baseline to half court. You're normally not running from baseline to half court. You're either getting the rebound, kicking it, and if you run 45 feet, you're over half court, or you're starting your sprint somewhere less than the baseline. So if you can just explode and create some form for a basketball player, 
they're going to go 45 feet before they have to bend, change direction. So with our basketball players, we've taught them to quit running down that court. If you got to put someone in your hip pocket, just explode and make them chase you. But all you need is three to five steps. And it's truly like game changing to the basketball player is teaching them again, don't run. Explode and then change direction. Explode and make someone chase you. Because on that basketball court, once when someone starts chasing you, they're dead. I mean, you know, I mean, they're just dead. So I'm not going to get that separation on the basketball court by running. They're like, what do you mean? Because if I have to get it by running, I'm already way down there by the time to get the separation. I've got to get that separation by explosion and acceleration or a great change of direction path. And when I do that and I've got that guy now not on my hip, but chasing to be on my hip, that, that, that offensive player is, is, is winning all the time. Tony, what do you think about things like, um, like I'm just trying to think about more, some more, some more general concepts um, yeah. that encapsulate some of what you're saying, like uh, doing like the, the belt mirror, mirror type drills with like a belt, like trying to break away the belt, like things that are love that. very simple, but you know, like constraint, basically what I'm asking is like constraints that don't necessarily require a lot of outright coaching, uh, but yep. are, they're good for people to start with, if that makes sense. Is there okay. any, like along with the belt, is there any like ideas that you have that it's like, okay, here's a good starting point that's going to force these things, but don't okay. necessarily require like a lot, as much nuance for, in terms of understanding the exact things you're looking for or coaching. Yeah. People are going to hate when I say this, because I had like two, two little controversial statements in my curriculum where speed kills, it does, it kills the athlete's ability to change directions. And fast feet, I say, don't eat. The big thing out there. <laughs> fast, fast feet, don't eat. I love that. <laughs> okay, because fast feet just means you're dan- like fast feet are for salsa players. Like if I want to salsa and be quick, I'm going to have fast feet. But fast feet don't eat. Like feet that separate do. But I love the ladder. And people are like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, the ladder is just misused. You can coach so much foot placement in the ladder to teach athletes what feet are where, and then how do they change directions out of that to then go to that belt system you're saying and say, hey, guys, we're going to work on keeping our wide base in this ladder. Simple drill. Keep a wide base in it, and let's work on crossing over out of it. Cool. And then you could hook two people up to that belt and say, now work on the same thing. You try to – athlete A, try to stay with athlete B. Athlete B, try to get away. But you can only do it with movement in a wide base and crossover. So now you've kind of added a technique to that drill, you know? And that's what I always try to do with our agility drills is what I call it. Hey, I'm setting someone up to win and someone up to lose. I'm like, what do you mean? Okay, this we're going to work on. We do it with soccer and offense, defense. And we say defense. I'm telling that offensive player to dance four times before they got to go to speed. And you know it. Okay. And that that offensive player has got to go one move, two move, three move, four moves. And then they got to go to speed. And we're just teaching that defensive player patience. Patience while they're dancing, be a basketball player, look at that belly button. Do not move until the fourth move. Like just teach patience. Like he's dancing, you know he's dancing. Hmm. You better not get off your base. I'm setting defense up to win. And then we'll say, okay, now let's set offense up to win. Same offense and same defensive player. It doesn't matter. It's not wide receiver, deep back. It can be offense, defense, soccer, lacrosse, whatever, basketball. Offense. You have to move in one or two moves. You can't dance defense, you're in trouble because now this person knows they're attacking you and all they got to do is hit one shoulder and be gone. 
And normally that time, the defense loses more than 60% of the time. But what that, or two-thirds of the time, but what that teaches both offense and defense there is if they're dancing, if I maintain my control, I can normally keep up with it. That dancing is trying to get me off control. But once when that offensive player decides to go, like, that's what gets hard. And so it teaches the offensive defense where we say set them up for the win, set them up for the L. And then you can tell, hey, defense, I'm setting you up for the L. What do you mean? I'm setting you up for the loss because I'm not letting this guy dance. And I just tell him he's got one move and he's got to pick a shoulder and run right through it. Can't run through your chest. But if I pick a shoulder and run right through it, if I have a good step at you, now you got to react. It's hard. Like the defense is always going to be one step behind. Like it's impossible for them to move before the offense. Now, if the offense tries to make a move and stays in place, that's called fast feet replace. They stayed in place. And the defense attacks like an offense, that means they move first. But the offense made the first move. The offense just didn't separate to their move. Defense did. So that's when a, we call it you change position. And that's what we try to say. Defense, we're setting you up for the loss, but see if you can flip the script. And the only way you can really flip the script is if the offense does it bad. And once when offense does it bad and defense does it right, that's when defense can flip the script and become offense. And it's kind of like an, I mean, it's just the defense is controlling the pace at that time, the space and everything. And so that's how we do our agility. A lot of times when we do mirror drills and all that with that belt is we'll give them different techniques to practice sometimes and then say, okay, free play, you know, do whatever you want. But let them like learn the different ways they can get open, open and close space so they can kind of add technique to that before we just let them free play, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge like play based warm ups individual. And even in agil- agility, I like, I like like creating and manipulating spaces as I've learned more about it. But I, as I've been talking to you, I just think of, there's so many ideas here on how to make that, even if it's a free play constraint base, which I tend to cater towards, all these things that you're teaching me can make that all more deliberate. It can add another constraint on the constraint that makes them really f- uh, focus on a finer point of, of change of direction. You know what I did with our football, our NFL players just last week, and I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner, but it was so awesome. It's like we were just basically doing skate hops, you know, for 25 yards where you jump at 45 degrees on your outside foot, jump back on your other. So you're just doing like, 45 degree skate hops, like for 25 yards going down the field. And then I said, all right, let's go offense in front, defense in back. You can skate hop and react. You can skate hop and stick. You can do whatever you want offense, but that defense has to try to read your body language if you're stopping or not. And the defense had to try to skate hop behind the offense Mm. and didn't know how, if they were going to just skate hop repetitively, stick here, go, go stick. And I was like, this is a cool drill. And then we build a whole session off that. Now let's flip. Offense, you try to react to the defense. Now you're not going to understand how hard it is for that defensive <laughs> player in trail position to know where you're going. Okay, now let's turn those skate hops, and you can turn it into a 45-degree sprint. Anywhere between your third to sixth hop, you can jump out and turn into a sprint. So now you threw a whole other capability of they're not just skate hopping. Now I'm worried about turning it to a sprint. So it became reactive. But they were working on a technique, so it wasn't just react. It was like they were learning on techniques. And that's what I think needs to be done more because there's so much great speed training out there, and there's so many different ways to change directions. 
that like I I want people to learn the different ways. Like in this podcast, if I don't know, you can say if, if you listen to this podcast and you email me, I'll send you like all the different foot placement drills we do. I think there's probably 48 drills. And everybody's like, oh, it's going to be a whole bunch of dancing. No, it's like you run straight through that ladder, straight through, and you learn every different way to change directions at 45, 90, and 135 degrees. But just running straight through the ladder. So it's a foot placement drill. Because I use a ladder that's five rungs deep. I'm like, everybody's going to hit that first four steps perfect. But what do you do at that fifth step when a point of attack agility comes in? So there's like 13 or 14 drills straight ahead, 13 or 14 drills when you work lateral through the ladder, 18 drills when you work ickies through the ladder, and then maybe like 20 drills going in and out of the ladder. But there's only four ladder drills, but what we perfect is how do you change directions out of those four movements? Because when you're running around the field, there's only four directions you run, straight ahead, backwards, laterally, or shifting side to side. Straight ahead, straight through the ladder, laterally, laterally through the ladder, shifting side to side like an icky, or bat pedals in and out, starting and stopping in and out the ladder. There's only four ways you move on that field. So we only keep those four movements in the ladder, but then work on all the different angles and setups coming out of the ladder. So if anybody references your, your thing, I'll, I'll send them all of those for free. Yeah. Because it will open their eyes to maybe I should, because everybody that sees it that got off the ladder, I understand why they did. Because every because everybody was dancing in the ladder four years ago and it was <laughs> horse manure, right? So all the great strength coaches are like, I'm not doing dance drills with my athletes. I believe in force application and did it. Kudos to you. I agree. But force application into what? Force application into the right foot position. So let's go back to the ladder, let them learn foot position. Then throw your force application into those the right foot position or various foot positions. And you've got an athlete. Shoot, I know I could ask you so many follow-ups. So this I mean, is such can, an expansive topic. You can ask me whatever. I'm fine. Yeah, I, I know. I actually, I'm, I'm running a little low on time. And I okay. think that um, with, with what you've said and that amount of information to digest and then some videos on the, the website, I think that would be a really good package to kind of put this, this in in a box. So uh, okay. yeah, maybe I'll, I'll have that be it for now. But man, I, I Tony, I really appreciate your time. And you the whole like, you know, game speed, linear speed and, and change of direction. You've given me so many new perspectives on that. And I really appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more on your end of things? On, your social on xpesports.com, we did release levels one through four of a 10 level system. And levels one through four is speed, acceleration, max V, and how to change that speed to game speed and learn how to change directions the most efficient way while you're running forward. Okay. And then after that, we're releasing this summer. All right. Now you've got to change directions running forward when it's not as planned and change directions moving backwards laterally and shaking side to side too. So like levels one through four is probably 70% speed, 30% agility. But then level four is all right. It's 30% game speed and 70% agility. Cause that's when I want the switch to happen. You call it 80-20. It's funny. I call it 70-30 in my programming before I talk to you. It's like our first four levels are 70% speed, 30% agility. So go ahead and get fast. And then you make the change from levels five through nine and you flip it. Now let's go 70% agility, 30% speed. And it's kind of set up to take someone almost through a full six to eight month cycle. And then they play their sport. And then they come back and you go through the same cycle again, but hopefully 
a stronger, more powerful athlete with, you know, a little bit more stuff. So then go to xpsports.com and look at it. And like I said, I'll, uh, I'm always sending out free content. If people email me and say, Hey, I don't want to buy your thing for 99 bucks. I'm like, that's fine. What, what do you want? And they'll tell me a little piece and I'll send them like 20 videos of just what they want. So trying to just be a breath of fresh air and give people as much as I can. All right. Well, thank you again for your time, Tony. I really appreciate talking to you for all this wealth of knowledge on all these different nuances of change of direction between football and, you know, more of my neck of the woods with basketball and those sports. So I, I thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it, Tony. All right, thanks so much, Joel. I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in for another show. We'll see you all next week.